Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. When Titanic set sail from Ireland on the 11th of April 1912 at 1.30pm, the ship carried approximately 708 third-class passengers, 277 second-class passengers, and 324 first-class passengers. Yet it was the presence of just a few dozen in this last group that lent the luxury ship even more glamour. There was John Jacob Astor IV, richest man in America. American mining and metals millionaire Benjamin Guggenheim was also on board. So too were Isidore Strauss, co-founder and co-owner of Macy's Department Store in New York, and William Thomas Stead, the newspaper editor, novelist, and political activist. Among these celebrities was also J. Bruce Ismay, chairman of the White Star Line. Then there were politicians, socialites, and even a silent movie actress. For three days, passengers enjoyed perfect conditions. Clear skies, light winds, and calm seas. First and second class passengers had the chance to relax and enjoy the luxury of the world's finest ocean liner whose vast recreational spaces were made for pleasurable idling. Even in third class, many passengers had better bedding and food than they were used to in their own homes. But Titanic's Australian-born bosun, Albert Nichols, and his men had very different experiences of the liner. I'm Michael Adams and this is part two of the Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's Titanic Hero. Bose and Albert Nichols' shifts were busy and even at rest he was on call around the clock. Albert's men worked four hours on, four hours off, taking what rest they could in bunks in quarters on E-deck where there was a lot of noise. Each day Albert and other department heads had to attend a morning conference with Captain E.J. Smith 
which was followed by their commanding officer's thorough inspection tour. Then, on the bridge, orders were issued for the next 24 hours. It was standard on White Star ships to hold a lifeboat drill after religious services on Sunday, but Captain Smith decided not to worry about it on Sunday the 14th of April for reasons that were never explained. Had he gone ahead with it, passengers and crew would have had a better idea which was their assigned lifeboat and how to get to it through the giant ship's maze of corridors. Then again, had Captain E.J. Smith conducted the drill, passengers would also have seen that there weren't nearly enough lifeboats for everyone aboard. Not that that would have necessarily been a concern. Titanic's design was, after all, said to make her practically unsinkable. Further, Lifeboats were then considered primarily for taking evacuating passengers to a rescue ship, which meant lifeboats could make multiple trips. That Sunday, Titanic received a stream of radio warnings from other ships about a vast ice field. For safety's sake, the ship changed course, heading farther south, though later warnings of big and potentially damaging icebergs were ignored or never reached Captain E.J. Smith. Titanic sped on at 21 or 22 knots, which was standard practice despite warnings because any large iceberg would be visible at a range of miles. Yet on this moonlessly black, calm and windless night, the iceberg that lay in Titanic's path was all but invisible until it was too late. At 11.40pm, a lookout rang the alarm bell three times and spoke into the voice tube connected to the bridge. What do you see? asked 6th Officer Moody. Iceberg, right ahead. On the bridge, 1st Officer William Murdoch took desperate measures to steer Titanic away and pushed the alarm that warned crew watertight compartments were about to be shut. Ten seconds later, the big doors slammed and for another agonising half a minute or so, Titanic closed in on the iceberg. The ship seemed to have just missed it. What Titanic missed was the visible peak, which represents only about 10% of an iceberg. But Titanic was bumping across a submerged shelf of the iceberg, buckling the starboard hull in numerous places, separating the steel plates below the waterline. The impact and the ship's displacement tipped the visible iceberg closer and shaved off huge chunks of ice that fell onto the forward well deck. Officers, crew and passengers who were awake and alert to the ship's usual sounds felt and heard this as a collision. But many sleeping crew and passengers did not, save perhaps those in third class who were closer to the impact and who seconds later saw water in their cabins and corridors. Albert Nichols was awake when the Titanic hit the iceberg. A surviving seaman told New York's Evening World newspaper that soon after the collision, Captain E.J. Smith had cried, My God, bosun, pipe all hands on deck. About half of Albert's men were asleep. They were due on the midnight watch, though some now stirred as they heard his voice in the corridor outside. Close watertight bulkheads, he yelled, running fore and aft, his command echoed by men under his command. On the freezing cold deck at around quarter to midnight, Albert told the men on duty and those who'd come up out of curiosity to see the ice... All hands stand by. You may be wanted at any moment. Around midnight, Titanic designer Thomas Andrews conducted an emergency inspection of the watertight compartments. He saw that five were now taking water. Titanic could stay afloat with three compartments flooded. But with five filling up, 
the only place the ship was going was to the bottom of the Atlantic. Thomas Andrews did some rapid calculations and gave the ship about two hours before she sank. Around this time, Albert appears to have either run into Thomas Andrews or been in the briefing that he gave to the officers. Either way, he was among the first to know that Titanic's first voyage was to be her last. Back in the seamen's quarters, several of Albert's dog-tired men who hadn't been on deck to hear the standby order were still in their bunks. The ship's joiner came in. If I were you, I would turn out you fellows, he said. Titanic, he told them, was taking water in several holds, and the racket court is getting filled up. Through the iron wall that separated their quarters from the large tank where the anchor chain was stored, the men could hear hissing through an overflow pipe, indicating that this huge chamber was filling with water. Albert Nichols entered, blowing three pipes on his bosun's whistle to get the attention of all of his men. Turn out, you fellows. You haven't half an hour to live, he said. That is from Mr Andrews. Keep it to yourselves and let no one know. Why Albert exaggerated the time the ship had left isn't known. Perhaps he wanted to ensure that his men acted with the utmost urgency. As for his insistence the men keep it to themselves, this was to prevent a panic among the passengers. All hands on deck, he said. Turn out the boats and take the covers off and place the covers amidships. Readying the lifeboats wasn't as easy as it sounded. The heavy tarpaulin covers had to be stripped, crews had to untie and make ready the oars and masts, find and insert the drainage hole plug, and attach cranks to the davits that were like little cranes to lower the boats. All in all, it'd take a handful of sailors about 20 minutes for each lifeboat. The lifeboat evacuation was overseen by Chief Officer Henry Wilde, First Officer William Murdoch, Second Officer Charles Lightoller, and Third Officer Herbert Pittman. They divided the able seamen into two groups. Wilde and Murdoch supervised lifeboats on the starboard side, where Albert had charge of several boats, while Lightoller and Pittman worked the port side. Once the lifeboats were ready, they had to be swung out to be loaded with passengers and crew members who'd row them clear. Then teams of Albert's men would lower the lifeboats, careful to pay out the ropes at both ends at the same time so the boat wouldn't tip passengers into the freezing sea 75 feet below. On hearing Thomas Andrews' assessment of Titanic's fate, Captain E.J. Smith had given the order for the boiler fires to be put out, which also meant releasing a massive amount of built-up steam. This steam, venting from eight exhausts, caused a deafening roar on the boat deck and was heard all through the ship. Albert's bosun's pipe was now essential for him to attract the attention of the men so they could respond to hand commands or shouted orders. Down below, stewards were waking passengers and telling them to get dressed and get ready to evacuate. The newness of the ship and its vastness complicated the evacuation because few crew members were yet accustomed to its layout. Second Officer Lightoller, for instance, said it had taken him 14 days before he could get from one part of the ship to another by the shortest route. That Captain E.J. Smith had cancelled the lifeboat drill didn't help matters. But what Albert and other experienced mariners had to know was this. There was only lifeboat capacity for 1,178 people, about half the souls on board. Originally, designer Thomas Andrews had wanted Titanic to have as many as 64 lifeboats, but his White Star bosses had overruled him, reducing the number of lifeboats to 20, 
including four collapsibles, which was still more than the number that was legally required. If a rescuing ship was alongside, 20 lifeboats would be enough as they could ferry passengers and crew to safety before returning to save more people. But there wasn't a rescue ship in sight. Albert Nichols and every other crew member aboard now had one mission, save as many people as they could. Of the rigid wooden lifeboats, there were eight to each side, four forward and four aft, each numbered with odd numbers on the starboard side and even on the port side. Yet there were many doubts about how to proceed. Should the lifeboats be lowered full from the boat deck, which risked passengers falling from them into the sea, or only partially full with passengers getting in from the lower decks? Second officer Lightoller later claimed he hadn't even known lifeboats could be lowered full. Around 12.20am, lifeboats started swinging out as first-class passengers began arriving on the boat deck. Women and children would go first. With Titanic not yet visibly listing, many passengers had to be convinced to evacuate. They were, understandably, not enamoured of the prospect of leaving a big, warm ship for a precarious little lifeboat on the cold and dark ocean. Mercifully, the deafening roar of the venting steam died down, yet the silence that followed was frightening in a whole new way. That eerie quiet was soon filled by the cheerful sounds of band leader Wallace Hartley and seven other musicians playing their instruments to soothe the nerves of the gathering passengers. Lightoller worried about lowering a full boat from the boat deck and decided to lower lifeboat four empty to the A-deck promenade where women and children could board more safely. But the promenade's glass windows had been locked and a man had to be sent to find the keys. Lifeboat 4 wouldn't go anywhere for more than an hour. Lightholler moved on to start working on Lifeboat 6. By 12.30, first-class passengers were haphazardly loading into lifeboats. The first lifeboat, number 7, descended at about 12.45am on the starboard side, carrying just 28 people, including actress Dorothy Gibson, who, within weeks, would be re-enacting her ordeal for the motion picture cameras. But 40 spaces on Lifeboat 7 went unfilled. One of those spaces belonged to Albert Nichols. He'd been assigned to crew this lifeboat, but Albert was elsewhere on the starboard side, making Lifeboats 3 and 5 ready and assisting passengers. About 10 minutes later, at 12.55am, the first distress rocket hissed into the sky, a fiery white streak that then erupted brilliantly to light up all the upturned passenger faces. This rocket was to attract the attention of a ship laying about 6 to 10 miles off Titanic's port side. Over an agonising hour, that ship's lights would recede and vanish, even as more rockets were fired and contact was attempted by Morse lamp. In the Marconi radio room, a Titanic operator had managed to contact the Carpathia and even though she was racing to the rescue, she was still hours away. Lifeboat 5 was next into the water on Albert's side. Lifeboat 3 followed at around 1am and Lifeboat 1 went perhaps 10 minutes later. All carried far less than their capacity. All the while, Wallace Hartley and his musicians were playing, even as it became clear the ship was going down. 
Despite disagreements over what they played right at the end, the musicians did keep playing and none would survive. There's far more mystery about Albert Nichols' fate. At about 1am, he's said to have crossed to the port side. There, he reported to Second Officer Lightoller, who was at that point working on Lifeboat 6. Lightoller ordered Albert to gather about six men and go below to open E-Deck's gangway doors. These were the doors used by passengers to enter the ship. The thinking was that half-filled lifeboats could row to the open door and more passengers could board. Faithful bosun Albert Nichols said, Aye, aye, sir, mustered some of his men and went below to do his duty on the sinking ship. Down below, navigating the maze of titanic corridors, this brave group of men may have reached the E-deck gangway door, opened it to see the waterline was too close, and shut it again before going up to D-deck, where they may have succeeded in opening a gangway door on the port side. Whether they closed it again, left it open, or closed it but left it unlocked isn't known. Soon after, Albert and his team were either surprised by a rush of seawater or found themselves trapped by rising waters. Either way, they all drowned. Albert's body was never recovered and the identities of the men who perished with him were never established. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalised plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Except there's every chance that's not what happened at all. Much of what we know about this sequence of events is from the testimony of 2nd Officer Charles Lightholler at the British and American inquiries, which were both held soon after the sinking. Lightholler was a senior surviving officer and thus became the White Star Line's expert witness for the company's version of events. He came under intense scrutiny over accusations the launching of the lifeboats had been chaotic partly because there hadn't been enough seamen to get even the limited number of these vessels away safely. Lightholder was also on the defensive because his portside lifeboats had taken a lot longer to get into the water than those on starboard. Lightholder lamented that a major contributing factor to the lack of able seamen was that he'd sent a large party of men below under the command of bosun Albert Nichols and they'd never been seen again. That was largely accepted to mean that they had died down below, likely around 1.20am, an hour before Titanic sank. But all Lightoller's testimony actually means is that he never saw Albert Nichols again. As for the other men, Lightoller's testimony varied. In one version, he said that he'd told Albert to gather some men to go below. In another version, he said that number was six. In any event, he didn't know who Albert chose, so he would have had no idea if he'd seen any of them again. Lightoller also said he didn't believe that Albert had succeeded in his mission before dying. I do not think it likely because it is most probable the boats lying off the ship would have noticed the gangway doors had they succeeded in opening them, he told the British Inquiry. Asked if people in lifeboats would have known a door or doors had been opened, Lightoller said... 
Hanging about the ship, they could not very well fail to see if the gangway doors were open, the light shining through, the blaze of lights, and they would very soon be hailed by people at the gangway doors. The bosun was down there, he has to use a little common sense as well, and when he has opened the gangway door, he would naturally hail a boat and tell them, starboard gangway door open, the port gangway door open, and so let them know. On a calm night like that, your lordship will know, the voice will carry a long way. What Lightholder was saying was that if Albert had succeeded, Lightholder's plan to fill the lifeboats would have saved many more lives. Lightholder was pressed about exactly when he'd given Albert the order during the readying and lowering of lifeboat 6, which took 20 to 30 minutes. Lightholder said he couldn't say, nor could he recall when he first noticed the ship listing to port. Strangely, he continued to say that he didn't think Titanic was going to sink, despite what Thomas Andrews had told the crew. At the American inquiry before a US Senate committee, Titanic's fifth officer, Harold Lowe, said this of the bosun's mission. A crowd of men went down with the bosun to clear away the gangway doors in the hope that we should be able to find people down there when we had lowered the boats down. Senator William Smith, who instigated and chaired the US Senate inquiry, was incredulous. That did not require much skill to clear away the gangway doors. Anybody could do that. Anybody could do that, Lowe replied, but whom were we going to send? Senator Smith pressed and castigated him, and by extension Lightoller, who'd supposedly issued the order. But it did require some skill to lower and to satisfactorily man the lifeboats, he said, and yet you were leaving the impression upon the committee and upon this record that the men who were familiar with those lifeboats and who had gone through the drill at Southampton were not available when those boats were loaded and lowered. Is that the impression you desire to leave? No, sir, said Lowe. It is not. A surviving able seaman told the British inquiry that bosun Albert Nichols had told him to get the Jacob's Ladder, which is a rope ladder, from the forecastle head. But once he'd retrieved it, Albert told him to put it down. Sir Robert Finlay took this to mean that the bosun had wanted the rope ladder for use with an open gangway door, but soon after decided there was no use for it. This might mean he'd either tried to open the doors, seen the water was too close, or had been given a counter-order by Murdoch or Wilde to abandon the gangway door mission. Whatever happened, why didn't Albert, if still alive, report any of this to Lightoller? There's a good chance that at the time Albert returned to the boat deck, if he ever left it, which we'll get to, to find Lightoller was at this point below on A deck, trying to deal with yet another lifeboat issue. Unable to speak to him, Albert went starboard and continued his duties at the lifeboats. What also contradicts Lightoller's story are the sightings of the bosun on the boat deck long after he'd supposedly been sent below. A surviving crew member, leading fireman Frederick Barrett, on the 30th of April told the newspaper Ulster Echo that he'd been ordered into lifeboat 13, which launched around 1.40am by Albert Nichols. I got on deck, a lifeboat was hanging from the davits, and the bosun, who knew me as I'd sailed with him in other ships before, said to me, you go in this boat and pull an oar. I took his orders and got in as she swung from the davits. When they had lowered us, I had to cut the ropes as she was so crowed I could not free her otherwise. Shortly after, Albert appears to have crossed to the port side. There he sent lifeboat two on its way, giving crewman James Johnson, taking the oars, a crash course in simple celestial navigation. This man told the British Inquiry, 
The boson told us to keep a star and keep looking at this star and not to lose it and keep within vicinity of it. Speaking to the Evening World newspaper in New York on the 20th of April 1912, surviving seaman George McGuff, who didn't testify at the inquiries, said that late in the sinking it was First Officer Murdoch who gave Albert his final order. Mr Murdoch ordered Bosun Nichols to go down to the working alleyway and bring up the big gang plank, capable of holding 40 people, he told the reporter. The Bosun and 10 men obeyed the order, going to what they believed was certain death, They were never seen again. The way McGuff told the story, Albert Nichols and his men went for the gangplank, meaning gangway, that was used by passengers to board the ship, perhaps to be used for passengers to walk out to lifeboats because Titanic was so low in the water, or to be used as a makeshift lifeboat itself. At this time, McGuff was working on Lifeboat 9, which launched with Bosun's mate Albert Haynes around 1.30am. It's unclear whether McGuff went in that boat, because evidence also points to him helping with Lifeboat 14, which left around 1.40am, perhaps with him on board. Half an hour later, the first waves washed over the forward well deck, and this part of the ship was soon underwater. Now it was obvious to all that Titanic was going down. It's impossible to know when Albert Nichols died. Lightholder's story might be true, and Albert may have been among the first crew to die trapped in a flooded corridor. He may have died later in a desperate bid to get a gangplank, or he may have been on the boat deck until the last. By 2.10am, the forward part of the boat deck was underwater, and the glass dome over the grand staircase shattered, sending a never-ending waterfall into the ship. Titanic was starting to come apart internally. There were two explosions below decks, and the ship lurched deeper, causing a huge wave over the boat deck that swept many men to their deaths. Albert may have been one of these, or he may have been crushed when the forward funnel collapsed into the water. Albert may have survived both and made it into the water only to freeze to death shortly after the Titanic split in two and sank at 2.20am. Two thirds of Titanic's deck crew survived, so you'd think someone would have witnessed Albert's last moments and lived to tell the tale. But most of those crew were already rowing lifeboats far away from all the death and destruction in the great liner's final moments. Second officer Charles Lightoller was there though until the last and he miraculously survived. Even at this point he must have realised he was going to have some explaining to do. While Lightoller and other survivors including J. Bruce Ismay, chairman of the White Star Line who had escaped under dubious circumstances were still en route to New York on the Carpathia, US Senator William Smith had already established an inquiry. After all, some of America's wealthiest and most prominent people had just been sent to the bottom of the ocean. Ismay wanted all crews sent back to England as soon as possible, most likely to avoid them having to give evidence. Everybody's hope, Lightoller wrote in his 1935 memoir, Titanic and Other Boats, so far as the crew were concerned, was that we might arrive in New York in time to catch the Celtic back to Liverpool and so escape the Inquisition that would otherwise be awaiting us. This hope thwarted, Lightoller knew he'd have to come up with answers. 1,500 people had died. If all the lifeboats had been filled, 500 of those would have lived. 
Perhaps the story of Bowes and Albert Nichols going below early in the sinking with a large group of men who then died and were thus unable to tend to the lifeboats was invented. Who was going to argue against it? Captain E.J. Smith, Chief Officer Wild, First Officer Murdoch, Sixth Officer Moody, they'd all gone down with the ship. Bosun's mate Albert Haynes had escaped in Lifeboat 9, thought to have been launched around 1.30am, so he wasn't privy to what happened on the boat deck for the last 50 minutes of the sinking. Albert Nichols was clearly dead, so what did it matter if his last moments were fabricated for the good of his surviving crewmates? What has to be remembered is that the crew who'd escaped in lifeboats that were half full bore immense survivor's guilt. Along with a very real fear, they'd be held responsible. Certainly, Lightoller was under immense pressure to present the best possible defence of the White Star Line. During the American inquiry, committee members and reporters reckoned that the superficially charming Lightoller was hiding something. And in his 1935 biography, Titanic and Other Boats, Lightoller freely admitted that he'd lied. Not so much at the American inquiry, where his interrogators knew little about seafaring, but in England, where he faced more penetrating questions. In London, Lightoller wrote, it was very necessary to keep one's hand on the whitewash brush. Sharp questions that needed careful answers if one was to avoid a pitfall carefully and subtly dug, leading to a pinning down of blame on someone's luckless shoulders. How hard Mr Scanlon and the legal luminary representing the interests of the seamen and firemen tried to prove there were not enough seamen to launch and man the boats. The same applied to the passengers, and quite truly. But it was inadvisable to admit it then and there, hence the hard-fought legal duels between us. Mr Scanlon's conquest of the higher legal spheres of recent years proves he was no mean antagonist to face. His aim was to force the admission that I had not sufficient seamen to give adequate help with the boats and consequently that the ship was undermanned. Lightoller towed the line, even if it meant lying. I had no desire that blame should be attributed to the Board of Trade or the White Star Line, though in all conscience it was a difficult task. The difficult task of protecting the company and the Board of Trade was, he said, an endless strain, though he boasted his shoulders were broad enough to bear this terrible burden. Still, he wrote in his book, just that word of thanks which was lacking, which when the Titanic inquiry was all over, would have been very much appreciated. Basically, second officer Charles Lightoller was miffed that he hadn't been given more gratitude for the great job of lying that he'd done for the White Star Line. Fifth Officer Lowe, too, may have been told to stick to the story of Albert's brave but doomed mission as an explanation for the shortage of seamen. Survivor George McGuff, who'd given his gangplank story to the newspaper, wasn't called to testify at either inquiry. It must be noted he'd previously been convicted of manslaughter and sexual assault, so anything he gave as evidence would have been under a cloud. His story, which was widely published, included the claim that First Officer Murdoch had shot a crew member through the jaw for the crime of rushing a lifeboat. This doesn't appear in other accounts and may have been an exaggerated or misconstrued version of Murdoch firing his revolver as panic intensified among passengers realising they were going to die. Whatever his past, George McGuff's conduct on the night the Titanic sank was unimpeached, with him rowing a lifeboat through the night to the safety of the Carpathia at dawn. 
His account of Albert Nichols and men going for the gangplank fits with theories other researchers have suggested that say it was Murdoch who gave Albert an order to go below. Lightola may have just refashioned what happened to give himself a better explanation for why the lifeboats had wound up half full and why he'd been so short-handed. The enduring question, what Albert did, when he did it, and what effect it had, if any, on the sinking of the Titanic, was raised and supposedly answered in the 2012 documentary Titanic, The Last Word with James Cameron. Cameron's assertion that Albert Nichols opened the portside D-deck door, which, once it reached water level, flooded the corridor known as Scotland Road, which ran the length of the ship, was based on analysis of the images of the wreck at the bottom of the Atlantic. Cameron claimed the flooding of Scotland Road accelerated Titanic's demise. Certainly, wreck site imagery shows a D-deck gangway door is open. There is, however, the possibility it was blasted open by the impact of Titanic hitting the ocean floor. This has been rejected by researchers as too convenient, given other doors aren't open and this one corresponds with Albert's likely mission. But if Albert was sent away on this mission, he may have opened the door, seen the waterline was too close and then had his men swing it shut but not waste time securing it. As it was an outward swinging door, water pressure would have kept it closed. An unlocked door might have been flung open when the Titanic hit the ocean floor. Another possible explanation is that late in the sinking, with D-deck below the waterline, desperate passengers unlocked the gangway door but were unable to open it against the outside water pressure. Again, when the ship hit the floor, it could have been blown open. James Cameron's conclusion that Albert, acting under Lightoller's orders, also doesn't account for survivor testimony that there were no gangway doors open. Boat 6, for instance, had to pass directly past it, which it did around 1am, yet no one reported the door being open. True, Albert might not yet have opened it, but in the minutes that followed, people in the lifeboat would have seen it open, heard his bosun's whistle and shouts, and rode over to take on more people. Ultimately, as with many things Titanic, there can be no definitive answers. What I do know is that whether it was trying to open a gangway door or retrieve a gangplank, Albert Nichols died doing his duty while trying to save lives. From the moment he'd woken up his men, he'd understood the fate that likely awaited him. At the American inquiry, Senator Smith asked a lamp trimmer named Samuel Hemming if he'd seen any people without life preservers. Yes, sir, he replied. I saw the bosun. The last time I saw the bosun, he did not have one on. One of the last things Albert did on the Titanic was hand his prized bosun's pipe to a crew member getting into a lifeboat. I don't think he would have done this at 1am, exactly halfway through the sinking. Albert needed his bosun's whistle to command his men. It strikes me that this would have been a final act when he knew there was little more he could do before he died. In any event, Albert asked that his bosun's whistle be given to his family in Southampton. It was, and it's still in the family. I know this because Albert Nichols' family is my family. You've been listening to Forgotten Australia. My name is Michael Adams, but it hasn't always been. I was adopted when I was two weeks old. The name on my adoption certificate? Damien Nichols.
And in mid-2018, using the research tools I developed for my book and for use in this podcast, I found my biological family. What you've been listening to is part of my recently discovered family history. I am a sixth-generation Lord Howe Islander. Thomas and Margaret Andrews were my great-great-great-grandparents. The villains of the piece, her daughter Mary and her husband, Captain Thomas Nichols, they were my great-great-grandparents. Their son, Titanic boson Albert William Stanley Nichols, was my great-great-uncle. The George who helped him escape Lord Howe Island, he was my great-grandfather. Mick and his wife Nora Nichols were my grandparents and well-respected Lord Howe Islanders. Daphne Nichols, their daughter and author of the book Lord Howe Island Rising that I quoted in part one, she's my mother. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you liked what you heard, I'd love it if you could leave a rating and review at iTunes. If you'd like to know more about any of these stories, including the sources for this episode, and to see photos of the people, places and events you're hearing about, head over to ForgottenAustralia.com. There you'll also find links to Forgotten Australia's Facebook page and to my new book, Australia's Sweetheart, which is about our forgotten movie star, Mary Maguire. This podcast was written and produced by me on my first visit to Lord Howe Island. As always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.